Hello and welcome. I'm Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm so glad to have so many of you here and to be part of this gathering. Thanks to Boston Athenaeum, the host of tonight's conversation with Lisa Napoli, who's written the extraordinary story of the founding mothers, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. NPR is now 50 years old. When its flagship afternoon news magazine, All Things Considered went on the air in May of 1971. It was little more than a scrappy startup, but it was also something different and kind. News and storytelling delivered with a very human voice, with women's voices. And I have actually a a special connection to this beautifully written story and to the founding mothers. In fact, when Lisa's book landed, I got many excited notes and texts from family and friends asking, have you seen this book? And of course I had. I joined NPR in 1982, 11 years after its founding, as an overnight production assistant on Morning Edition, which in those days was something of a startup too. I was 23 years old. And being an overnight production assistant meant that I got up at midnight, I got to work at 1 a.m. on a bicycle when it was warm enough, and worked through the night with a small team of producers to get this brand new show on the air before the sun came up, editing pieces of reel-to-reel tape with grease pencils and razor blades. And I have this distinct memory of Linda Wertheimer walking into our morning meeting with a red down jacket and wet hair, not sure if she actually had her red cowboy boots by then, just to chat about what was unfolding on Capitol Hill. And it was just, it was no big deal. It was just Linda. And a little less than 30 years later, I was running NPR's news division and the work of 400 journalists across the country and around the world. It was a very different organization than the one I walked into in the middle of the night in the early 1980s. But there was a constant, and I think it was a constant that was especially for women. There was a spirit of generosity, if you will, a place where values, where a sense of connection to the work and to one another ran deep. We talked to one another about our lives, our lack of sleep, our babies. We were three-dimensional human beings. And with Susan and Linda and Nina and Koki playing the role that they did in my life and in NPR's life, I had stunning role models. But I didn't even understand that until much later. It just never occurred to me that I couldn't run the news division or that there were impediments to women playing powerful leadership roles. These four women may not have been the boss, but they were boss. There's a paragraph early on in Lisa's story that sums it all up for me. She writes, some women in the 1970s marched for equality or sat on the sidelines angrily lamenting the lack of it. Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki had, through a combination of will, timing, and talent, used their distinctive purchase to elevate the status of their sex in a different way. Working a hundred times harder than men while wielding microphones as Susan described them as magic wands waving into the silence. That kind of says it all. And with that, I'm delighted to pass the floor to Ellen Clegg, a powerful woman in her own right, a storied Boston Globe editor who rose through the ranks and eventually became the paper's editorial page editor, a role she played for four years until 2018. She is here to lead the conversation with Lisa Napoli about this captivating book, Ellen, Lisa, I am happy to pass the virtual mic, or perhaps I should say the magic wand to the two of you. Wow, that was so fabulous. It's such a pleasure. You, I've known Margaret for years and I knew a little bit of her backstory, but 
Thanks, Ellen. Thanks, Margaret. And thank you, Lisa, for this inspiring read. Um, I mean, I'm a print journalist, but I have to say hearing women's voices every day in my kitchen kept me going through a long career. And uh, it's a deeply researched book. It's packed with great lines um, and it's very wise. So uh, let me say something about Lisa. She was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we won't talk about baseball, therefore. Uh, in her print, radio, TV, and online journalism career, she has worked at the New York Times, Marketplace, MSNBC, and KCRW. She's the author of three previous books, Radio Shangri-La, which is about the media culture in Bhutan, Ray and Joan, about the legendary Croc family, and Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the birth of 24-hour news. So, um, Lisa, let me start with an overarching question. Um, given where we are in this moment, particularly in terms of growing skepticism about mainstream media, why did you decide to tackle this story? That's exactly why, because I love the media history. It allows me to dip into the past and ignore the noise, or at least flush out a lot of the noise of now. I'm just, I guess, as I'm getting older, I love learning about these institutions, which I've either danced around um, as an employee over the course of my career and consumed. And it's just so exciting to, to dig deeper and, and see how they got to be how we got to be as a, a nation where we are today. And um, you've mentioned that this is an unauthorized um, book. Can you talk about that? Yes. Was that and, hard? Yes, it was hard. And all of my books have been unauthorized. Uh, I wrote about the country of Bhutan without you know, getting permission, which many people did or used to do, or maybe still do. I, I haven't kept as much up with that. Same thing with the Kroc family and McDonald's. McDonald's decidedly didn't want me to help, didn't want to help me or let me have access to any archives they might have around Joan. Uh, and same thing with CNN. But uh, this one was particularly difficult because three of the four women are alive. And I have, of course, sought their permission or, or blessing before I began. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's strange, Ellen, because it's so different when you write journalism than when you write biography. These are prominent people. NPR is a prominent force. Um, and there are archives. And thankfully, Susan Stanberg left her personal archive and professional archive to this wonderful library at the University of Maryland, uh, which is all about broadcasting the Hornbake Special Collections. And so I went in and started digging. And even when Susan first said no, uh, when I kept going back to her and saying, but, but tell me about this, tell me about this. She, I think, understood that I was really trying to honor their achievements and, and their history. And she started talking to me. So it's a, it's a strange dance because I think it gives it an authenticity that it might not have if it had been sanctioned. Uh, then it becomes more PR. Uh, and this way it's it's really, and I'm telling a story in this book about a, a crazy time, not or completely coincidentally around the time that Margaret showed up at NPR when NPR almost fell apart. So 
Uh, I think it's better that it's not authorized, but I'm delighted that the women have embraced it since it's been published. And since you mentioned um, NPR almost falling apart, you give kind of a warts and all picture of the Frank Mankiewicz era. Can you talk some about that? Big spending, uh, flirting with bankruptcy. Yes. And, yes. and a, a big comeback. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to look at something. And I did that too with McDonald's. Not that McDonald's and NPR are anything like each other, but they're both vaunted institutions, whether you love McDonald's or not. And I'm not a McDonald's consumer. I was just fascinated by it as a cultural force. And to know that it almost fell apart and almost didn't make it is fascinating. And same thing with CNN, same thing with NPR. It had such a rocky beginning not for any reason other than it was just a startup at a time when radio was marginalized and when people were really in love with their televisions and FM radio was not a dominant force. And so uh, this it was a combustible moment in time, both because of the women's movement, but, but the media culture that uh, NPR arrived at. And by 1982, 83, uh, it had, NPR had its third president, Frank Mankiewicz, who was this storied character around Washington. I mean, what a joy to learn more about him and to watch uh, old interviews with him and read his books and um, get to know about him, uh, the son of a famous Hollywood icon himself, but also a, a political force. He was Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s press secretary, had to announce his tragic assassination to the world, and then uh, went back to his roots in journalism and got recruited to be the third president of NPR. And so he was the perfect person to sort of tie up where NPR was in 1978. And he was the person responsible for giving Cokie Roberts her staff job at NPR. And uh, he was beloved by the newsroom uh, for his his vivacity and his connections and his his enthusiasm about this this medium that was really just bubbling up. But that's a long way of saying that he also wasn't the best money manager. He wasn't a good oversight uh, person, overseer of the finances. And so early on in, in NPR's career, this was a huge issue, obviously. Actually, it would be a huge issue anywhere at any time. Uh, and it almost did NPR in. So it was a fascinating story for me as a historian to run across because, you know, we all think of NPR NPR, of course, always wants another Joan Cruck to come along, but we all think of NPR as being, you know, just stable. It's not, it's not going to go away. And it very much almost did in those early 80s. And what turned it around? Um, there was a really a populist uh, movement to donate. Partially, it, it was it was less so that because the, the finances of NPR are murky in the sense that, you know, you have the member stations like BUR, and then you have NPR, the mothership, and, and the finances were different back then in the way that they related to one another. And so it took someone coming in uh, to a man named Ronald Bornstein, who'd been involved with educational radio before it became public radio. Uh, so he had deep roots in the system. Um, of, of public radio member stations around the country. And he came in and he uh, righted the ship, as you will, 
And then the next person who came in, uh, Doug Bennett, was able to financially get the system, you know, organized. It was it was such a bad time in the early days that they were giving out credit cards to people after years of not having any money whatsoever. And if, if a reporter went on a reporting trip and there were very few reporters, they might sleep on someone's couch. They went <laughs> overnight from uh, Mankiewicz showing up and giving issuing credit cards to people and no account expenses uh, accounted for. And so it went from one extreme to the other. And then professional management came in and made it made it viable. And then that's from that point is where the robust system that we see today of the members paying for the um, membership in NPR, paying a fee to NPR, which you hear about in the pledge drives, uh, that had that didn't exist before this implosion. So the good news is that that implosion, as it often does, helped uh, you know correct put it on a course correction and, and professionalize. But like many startups that we hear about, and I, I covered technology for a long time. So I've heard the story over and over again, and we all do, you know, even if you don't cover things for a living, you see um, bad management or lack of management. And then all of a sudden it, it course corrects. And that's what happened because so many people were so passionately committed by that point, by the early eighties, uh, in the first few years, if that had happened, NPR might have just gone away because not enough people were listening to it. There weren't as many member stations as there are today, hundreds. Um, there were fewer than 100, and they none of them had any money uh, or resources. Uh, so it was a completely different system at that time. And what you're describing is a classic startup, but yet, as you write, that provided opportunities for women. How, how does that happen? Well, as Margaret described, she came in as a young woman and worked those, you know, grunt hours and made it, you know, made a career for herself there. Uh, before that happened in the 70s, it was extremely difficult for women to get jobs in broadcasting or in newspapers, as you probably know, uh, it was it was next to impossible for women to have a byline either in front of a microphone or at a newspaper, unless they were writing about society issues, what was called then women's issues, uh, weddings and social stuff around town, uh, and so. You know, the, the world that Margaret stepped into in the 80s, and I started working then too, I started my career at CNN, we wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to us that we wouldn't be allowed to do these jobs. But 10 years earlier, that was definitely the case that women, and these four women in particular, were told time and again, we can't give you that job because you're a woman. And of course, they weren't the only ones. Uh, so it was a different universe. And because it was a startup, uh, they didn't have the capacity to discriminate in the sense of saying, we can't use you. Uh, if you had even just a little bit of radio experience, and that was the other thing. It wasn't like we had a, a world where people went to Columbia Journalism School or BU or all sorts of journalism schools to get advanced degrees in, in audio production. That just didn't exist then. Uh, so there was a very small pool of people who would be even interested in working at NPR in the early days, which of course is comical now because it's fiercely competitive uh, at, any, at every level, uh, entry and on up. So back then, 
they were just happy if somebody showed up and was willing to work terrible hours for low pay uh, in order to get experience. And that was a, a ripe moment for these for these women. It's not to diminish their talent, but they even say themselves that a lot of it has to do with the timing. And I want to quote one of my favorite lines um, that you wrote about the 70s and the women's movement. You um, you write that the simmer, quote, simmering women's lib movement was churning like a tornado through the daily fabric of existence in the 1970s. Yes. Um, certainly describes that, that era where civil rights of all kinds were being, were under for, uh, discussion and in ferment. So when yeah, the young Nina Totenberg, uh, came to work in Boston for the Boston Record American. She uh, was consigned to women's issues. And you write that she assigned herself a story on contraceptives, on oral contraceptives, which were then controversial. And yes. can you talk about what happened next? Yes, this is a mind-blowing story, even if you didn't know that Nina Totenberg went on to become one of the most famous reporters in the country and certainly the most one of the most intrepid. Uh, that it happened to anybody is shocking, but particularly her. Uh, she was starting out and she wanted to bust out, as you say, of this women's beat. And so she was coming up with different story ideas to pitch to her editor uh, to, to do that. And one story she pitched was about the availability of the pill on college campuses, because of course, at that time, the pill was just rolling out and only allowed to be prescribed to women who were married. And so the idea that there was this underground or overground world of, of contraceptives was shocking. And Nina wanted to do the story. And the editor said to her, Nina, are you a virgin? And Nina said, yes. And she, of course, I, in, in an interview for the book, she subsequently laughed and said, I was 21 and I was a virgin. That's the real story. <laughs> but she said, uh, yes. And the editor said, well, have you ever had an internal examination? And she said, no. And the editor said, well, I, I can't let you do that story. And so Nina went away and didn't do the story. And when my editor, who's considerably younger than I am, the editor who commissioned this book, read that, he was so shocked, uh, as I'm sure anybody hearing that story would be. But sadly, it wasn't surprising to Nina that, uh, that an editor in that capacity would be paternalistic. Uh, at least he wasn't, you know, uh, coming on to her because that was happening to lots and lots of women. And Linda has stories. They all have stories. So uh, yes, pretty shocking, but that's the climate. I mean, I think that really embodies, exemplifies the climate that, that women who wanted to be reporters were stepping into. And of course, I only talk in this book about journalists. I, you know, I'm sure at every single profession, uh, vaunted or not, this, this kind of stuff was going on, of course. And um Speaking of women's work, the brilliant Susan Stamberg, who um, worked her way, got a, a scholarship to Barnard. She was at Queens College, a commuter school. Um, despite her intellectual credentials, she got her first job because she could type 99 words a minute. Yes. 
Yes. And that was that, you know, didn't matter that she had a fabulous degree from a fabulous institution. Uh, the kind of job that she was, you know, expected to get was that because, of course, you know, she she said she talks about how she was one of five women who graduated from Barnard that year who didn't have an engagement ring. And, you know, that was why women went to school. You know, you went to a better school, you got a better husband, but that was, <laughs> that was the goal. And uh, it wasn't necessarily hers, but she did marry not that long afterwards. She did meet a man in the Boston area. She came up to Brandeis for graduate school and didn't love graduate school, but met a nice man at Harvard Law School whom she married, which is why she wound up in DC. And thank goodness she did, because she wound up in DC and was typing again and wanted more. And thankfully had the gumption to go out and work her network, which now we're all, you know, we teach kids to do that from early age, but it wasn't, wasn't baked into women then to do that kind of thing as far as finding profession, uh, professional work. And she did. And thankfully it led her to this little radio station that was a startup at WAM at, at American University, WAMU, which is now, of course, a powerhouse in the public radio system, but it was just a little pipsqueak then, and they needed somebody to work on a public affairs show as a producer. And she said to the people in introducing her, what does a producer do? And they said, you can't take no for an answer. And so she said, that's me. So it's, an, it's incredible to hear that her story, you know, I, I loved the story of Susan. I guess I related to it a lot uh, coming from New York. My father was a salesman too, not a college graduate, neither of my parents were. And that was the world Susan was from. And knowing that Susan Stamberg, whom I listened to for decades, had not come up in this rarefied family, uh, but just had this innate intelligence and curiosity that translated so magnificently to public radio and defined the sound of public radio more than any anyone else, even these other three women at, at its earliest days. Uh, wow, what a, what a great, great, great story. And uh, what role do you think women's colleges played in the lives of um, these women? Linda Wertheimer went to Wellesley, Susan went to Barnard, and the late great Cokie Roberts also went to Wellesley. Do you think that had a um, sh shape, helped shape their careers? You know, it's interesting. I think just like I mean no disrespect to say that a lot of this was timing, you know, they, who knows what kind of lives they would have had if they'd been born later or earlier, or if they hadn't walked in the door at NPR. Uh, I definitely felt as I was researching this, how remarkable it was that three of the women had gone to women's colleges. Nina had gone to BU for a while and dropped out. She just didn't like school. That's a whole other story we can talk about in a bit. But um, these three other women uh, at, and, and just had such different stories. Linda was a little bit more like Susan, except geographically, she was from New Mexico and she went to Wellesley on scholarship. And if she had not gone to Wellesley, uh, and had gone instead to New Mexico State or even to some college in LA, or I, mean, I think she was looking at Mills College in, in uh, Northern California before she found Wellesley. Uh, someone encouraged her to apply to Wellesley. Who knows how her life would have turned out, but the fact that she did go to Wellesley definitely lit a fire in her and, and an intellectual curiosity in her, even though she 
obviously was a great student to have won these scholarships. Uh, the idea that she was in this world that was rarefied and surrounded by other women who were just devoutly interested and curious in the world around them absolutely shaped who she was as a person. Uh, Koki's story is perhaps the most interesting in the sense that she came from a rarefied world. She was from daughter of a congressman who passed away and whose wife, her mother, Koki's mother, ran for the office, even though she had never, she had gone to college, which for women of that generation was not typical, uh, Koki's mother, that is, Lindy Boggs. And she ran for Congress and became a congressperson herself. And Koki, uh, who grew up in D.C., as Linda Wertheimer says, born in the boiler room of Congress, uh, wound up going to Wellesley, or not wound up, she went to Wellesley, and all she wanted when she got out of college was to marry her boyfriend, who went to Harvard, Steve Roberts. And really, she describes herself as not even slightly a feminist when she got out of school. Her one prevailing goal was to convince Steve to marry her. And I get into that in, in detail in the book. Uh, and I think that anybody who looks at Koki in her later life would find that impossible to imagine that that was her prevailing interest. And in, you know, she was, of course, deeply ferociously devoted to her family uh, and her faith. She was deeply religious too, but um, the idea that she had no interest in a career is, is, was so illuminating for me. So I think to your question, I mean, they all revered their school, all three women revered their schools and remained, uh, remain involved with them. But uh, it really is a fascinating lesson for me. I'm in my fifties, I always knew from my mother, she made sure I knew that it wasn't easy for women ever, it was much harder in the generations before, but, but digging into their lives and seeing the struggles that they went through and the, and the societal norms, the conventions. You know, Koki's sister became the mayor of Princeton and when she started getting involved in local Princeton, the town, uh, when she, because her husband taught there. And when she told her mother, uh, Lindy Boggs, that she was going to get involved in local politics. Lindy said, why would you want to mess up your life by doing that? You know, you have such a nice life. You're a mother. You have a wonderful husband, a wonderful family. So that was just the societal expectation for women back then, um, particularly women of a certain station in life who didn't have to work hard at jobs to put bread on the table for their families. So different world, different universe. And Koki and, and Mina have a special connection because um, when she had difficulty getting a job, her husband, Steve Roberts, walked her resume over to NPR. It's amazing. When Koki uh, followed Steve around, she obviously did convince him to marry her. They had two children. She loved having her family. Uh, that, that part of her life was set and she looked at working and was working as a, the spouse of a New York Times reporter, which is what her husband was. And uh, his work took them back to DC from, from overseas. And Steve was at the New York Times uh, Bureau in Washington and said to his uh, cube mate, 
where'd you come from before you came to work here? And she said, well, I just left this place called NPR. And Steve had never heard of it. He'd been out of the country for a couple of years. And plus, no one really knew NPR in the late 70s well. Uh, certainly in the bigger cities. And so he said, well, I don't know what that is, but she's done some radio work. She'd been a stringer for CBS overseas. And uh, the woman said, take the, take the resume, get, get, bring your resume in and we'll bring it over to Nina. So he literally, to, to keep Koki from having to come in from the suburbs where they lived, he himself hand delivered the resume. She was so miserable because she just couldn't find work, Koki. And there she was in DC with her family, getting her kids situated. Her mother was in Congress. Her mother was situated, her husband was situated and she was lost and, and desperate for a job. So Steve was willing to do whatever it took to make sure she got one. The story. So as you researched this um, and, and wrote it, what was your biggest surprise? Hmm. Wow. Gosh, there were so many surprises. I think, I think uh, the stories I've related were surprising because you know what I found so much fun about this book is I didn't know these backstories at all. I just you know these people were four fully formed, and, and NPR was a fully formed entity in my mind. I knew that it had to have started somewhere, that they had to have started somewhere, but I had no idea. Uh, what their roots were. And I loved every aspect of their roots and finding them out and stitching them together. It almost like it was like a perfect puzzle because all the pieces fell into place for me. Susan and Linda started in 1971, just before NPR started. And Susan had roots in educational radio before President Johnson created the whole public broadcasting system. Um, and then Nina had been trouncing around DC after leaving the Boston area, you know, working on publications, most of which just shut down and finally back ended her way into this job at this place she'd never heard of in radio, which she'd never considered working in NPR. And then the whole Koki story I just relayed. So the whole thing, and then the Mankiewicz uh, drama associated with it, it was all just really exciting. And, and that's the thrill of researching something like this. You don't know what you're gonna find and you don't know how it's all gonna stitch together. The other, the other thing I think, um, and, and anybody listening who's interested in public radio, which presumably you are, is it, what was so surprising is the creation of public radio, how it was an afterthought. When the Public Broadcasting Act was written, it was written as the Public Television Act. Uh, nobody imagined that radio really mattered at that point, but there were thankfully people who went to bat for it, rallied for it and to get it included in that act. So at every turn, there was just so many little tidbits and big that were just, I, I found really intriguing. And I think, I hope somebody who's interested in, in the system uh, as a consumer of it or otherwise uh, would, would find it so too. And I have to mention um, your terrific footnotes. It's, I read the book in print, but if you type in the URLs, you will get an audio treat. You can hear the original theme song, the different iterations of the theme song, the first broadcast of a student protest against the Vietnam War. It's phenomenal. 
thank you. I love the footnote. I look now that I'm writing books like these. It's the first thing I look at when I read a book is the acknowledgments and the footnotes. And I want to make the footnotes interesting and illuminating because I want people to to dig deep too. So thank you. That's a huge compliment. Well, and and so how long? And you were locked in lockdown yourself and with your mother in Florida. How long yeah. did did you did it take you to put this book together? Well, I finished the CNN book and, and it was right around the time that Cokie Roberts passed away. And that's mm. when my editor asked me if I would write a biography of her. And I said, I'm, it was so soon after she died. And I looked at her life and it was a fascinating life. Her family's life, as I say, uh, was just so interesting. But a friend, a colleague of mine from public radio said to me, you know, the founding mothers said, are you going to write a book about the founding mothers? And I said, actually, that's a really good idea. And then I, when I realized that NPR was turning 50 this year, my editor said he would buy the book for me without a proposal, which for anybody who writes books knows that that's a big deal because you spend years on a proposal uh, and maybe you don't know if you're going to sell it. So I said, wow, okay. He, he said, you could do it, but you have to get it done so that I can publish it for when the 50th anniversary happens. So, you know, there is zero good about the pandemic. Uh, my silver lining of the pandemic was that I, I was with my mother for many months. Uh, and that was wonderful because I haven't spent that much time with her since I was a kid. And I was locked down working. I had to I had about a little over a year to do it, to do this whole book. So it was a killer. So that's why it's so much fun to be able to talk with you because, and I wish we could be doing it in person because I didn't see people for so long. I mean, everybody didn't, but in a different way than everybody didn't. It was just very, very focused and uh, a bit crazy, not, well, not advisable. But, and what a, what a pleasure though that you've survived and to see you on screen at least. And um, you know. let's bring um, Margaret back and talk a little, I'd love to hear more about your career, Lisa and Margaret. Um, welcome back. It, uh, Margaret, I wanna start with you uh, because um, I, I really would love to hear some more about your storied career and your goals for WBUR. So where do I begin? So I, I think I, we last left off in, well, I, we, we started in, in 1983 when I walked through the doors of, of NPR and was an overnight production assistant on a morning edition. I, and I used to always say, um, I'm still happy to be able to go to bed at night because it was so incredibly disruptive to work through the night and then sleep during the day. Um, I'll tell you a, a, a brief, um, First of all, it's wonderful to hear you and Lisa talking about this. It's sort of a, it, it brings back so much. One of the things that happened in 1983 when NPR was in such distra financial distress is not only did Ronald Bornstein come in to, to sort of save the day as a, as a, as a sort of a, a well-regarded man who understood the business, not just the journalism, but we actually went on the air. NPR went on the air in 1983 right after I arrived and did what we called the drive to survive. Oh, you were part and of that. I was part of that. I was there and never before had NPR actually gone to its listeners and asked for support and NPR had to go to its member stations and say, can we, can we do this? 
And, um, and so that was a real moment. And it was a moment with the stations and a moment of turnaround and a moment where we understood that actually people, that NPR really mattered in a profound way in people's lives. Um, I stayed there, as I said, Alan, um, I was an overnight production assistant. I, uh, I left for a couple of years to go to California and came back and worked on All Things Considered for many years and, and had the pleasure of, um, Linda Wertheimer was a, ho uh, a host on All Things Considered and, and, and those were the days of her red cowboy boots. And I was just thinking as you were, just as you were talking about their, their lives, Linda was a grocer's daughter, as Lisa said, in New Mexico. And, and I, I think of, Lisa, of um, Linda almost every day because she once told me that her father believed that like, never worry about mold things are last much longer than you think. And I literally think of her every day as I preserve things in the refrigerator or toss out the mold. I, I go back to my relationship with, with Linda. But I traveled the country with her. I traveled the country. I, I, I produced stories with, with Susan Stamberg. And then eventually um, sort of rose throughout the organization. And it was one of those, I mean, what was extraordinary and lucky for me. And as I said, I, I, I never... And it was probably um, in some ways sort of, uh, I, was, I was sort of protected from the outside world in a way because there was something right, Lisa, like about NPR that had a, a bubble-like quality that you were just in your, your go ahead. No, well, because of the, because of those women. I mean, the women, you can right. talk about that whole idea that they had that back office uh, where they, as you said before, they weren't in charge technically, all they all, all they could have been, they all could have been as you were down the road, uh, but they seemed to exert, uh, wield such influence in both the union and the, the day-to-day -day management that I could see how the climate would be okay for, for women there. It was really okay, and it and it didn't and it really didn't occur to me that anything that I wanted to do I I couldn't do. But what what Lisa's describing is on M Street on twenty twenty five M Street, which was across the street from CBS News, and when we were really in trouble, as Lisa knows, we we had run out of three ply um, paper, and we had to go across the street to CBS to borrow three ply paper to bring back to NPR. <laughs> to put in our typewriters to type, to, to, to type the, the, the news. Um, and then I ended up sort of after running the programming division, which was, which meant working with all of, all, all of the, pro, many of the programs that were not news shows. So the beginning of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Car Talk and Fresh Air and all those other beloved programs. And I really got to know and engage with the public radio system in a different way. And then after a series of events um, was asked to step in to take over the news division at a moment that was another hard moment in NPR's history. And I was, I was asked to step in during a moment of crisis uh, at NPR and thought I was gonna do it for a couple of months, but ended up staying for, for, for three and a half years in that job. And it was, um, I mean, one of the things about NPR, there was a reminder in that time too, when it was a really rough time for NPR and um, that the power of telling stories, news began to break the year that I stepped into the, new, the, to the news leadership job. The Arab Spring happened, um, the killing of Osama bin Laden, uh, Obama was reelected. There was the Boston, in this whole period, the Boston Marathon bombing. And sort of even when there were struggles at NPR, and there have been over the years, 
the reminder of how deeply we matter in people's lives and how um, the importance of the stories that we tell are, um, are what make it sort of worth coming back again and again. I left um, Ellen for five years and I went to the Atlantic magazine for five years, which I loved. And it was, um, I remember thinking that I could never love a place like I loved NPR, that it was so much a part of the fabric of my being and who I was. And I'd sort of, I'd, been, I'd grown up there. I'd effectively raised my children there. And, and, and of course, not only did I raise my children there, but everybody there knew my children. I mean, they were just part of the fabric of, of all of our lives. And, um, and the Atlantic was a sort of a, a, an awakening of the world outside and, and a wonderful one. And in some ways, what struck me about the Atlantic that was parallel to NPR and the Atlantic actually, as you both probably know, got its start in Boston. Yes. Um, uh, and, um, but it was a place that was sort of filled with a sense of values and a, relation, a deep relationship with the audience and people loved the Atlantic the same way they love NPR. And then I was recruited to come to Boston to, to, to run um, WBUR. And I, the, my story is that um, I actually grew up in Boston. And so it was a homecoming for me. I, I, my, my father was um, a professor at MIT and Tom and Ray Maiazzi, the car guys, were actually his mechanics. And so um, I, had never, I had never quite thought of coming back to Boston. My parents used to always say, everybody else's kids come to Boston, our kids go away. So my parents, sadly, when I arrived back, were gone. I arrived uh, in January of 2020, six weeks before this thing called the coronavirus took hold. Um, and I stepped into the job at BUR, which has been, I mean, to say that it has been a ride is the understatement of the century. I mean, leading through a pandemic and everything that we've been through last year is definitely not for the faint of heart, but it's also exhilarating. And what I find to be a constant is um, the powerful relationship that we have with our listeners and what we have meant in people's lives over the past year in particular and how vital a resource for not just global news, national news, but also the deep importance, especially in this story of local news. And, and you know, people needed to know about their schools, about the hospitals, about how full the hospitals were, about where, um, about what the governor was saying about what it, what they could do in terms of masks or when they could stop wearing masks and about reopening and when and where to get vaccines and how to do it. And so we are a deeply embedded public service in the city of Boston. And my ambition is to be the most trusted and beloved local news organization you know, it, in the city with a deeply embedded relationship with our listeners and and to make sure even in this sort of daunting digital age um, that, that we um, are not only on the radio, but we are also on air online and as is the Athenaeum on stage, which is such an important part of our lives too. And someday we will come back and all be together again. And this is a question for both of you. Um, What's next in the audio um, landscape? Uh, the, it's being disrupted continually by social media by, um, and by podcasts. What, what do you foresee? And, and you covered tech, Lisa, so. Oh, I'm so rooted in the past. I wanna hear what Margaret has to say about that because I know that that's something she's dealing with constantly now, right? 
Constantly. I mean, I think that the, the stunning thing as somebody who spent her life in audio and understanding the power and the magic to, to pull the word from Susan talking about the magic wand, the magic of, of radio and of audio and the intimacy of the medium um, and it's still real and raw and, and ripe. And I think it, there's nothing like it that seeps into people's minds. But now the whole wide world has discovered that. And so the competition for people's attention is, is fierce. And, um, and, and everybody um, from the Boston Globe to NPR to, to, to Spotify are in the world of, of audio listening. And so, the challenge is, is to find audiences that will come to you and that who will create a daily habit with WBUR or the programming and audio that WBUR creates. But we're also in a world of text and we're also in a world of photographs. It's a, it's a, we are suddenly, you know, it's funny, people talk about WBUR as a local public radio station. And of course, in the year, whatever year we're in, the year 2021, we just passed our 2022 budget last night. So I, I always get stuck on what year we're in. Um, we have to be a, a, a multimedia organization and then we have to win people's hearts and minds on every platform that we that is. We can't just think of ourselves as a broadcaster. We need to help people find us everywhere. It's funny, when you're talking, Margaret, I think one of the first times I might have known about you or met you was many years ago when I was at the New York Times covering tech. And uh, I was brought to PRPD, the Public Radio Program Directors Group annual meeting. And someone was asking the question that Ellen asked. And I remember thinking, I don't have a crystal ball, but I know it's changing everything. And I was working for a newspaper on a website about and on a section about technology. So it just seems like for all the challenges that you've got are, I'm sure, daunting as you describe them, but they've always been there. You know, if you've been doing this job 20 years ago, you've been dealing with some other iteration of the impact of technology and, you know, the accelerating speed of news or, right, so it's so right. interesting how these things come up and they rejigger how we as humans consume information and news and demand it, but then it also creates a challenge and opportunities for people who are making the media. So it's it's so interesting. And I think that's why I love looking back at the history because it really is the same sets of challenges that just keep repeating themselves uh, and creating so much more for all of us to consume, which can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming. I mean, it's interesting, Lisa, because what you're talking about, and I was actually trying to remember, we've met we met a long time ago and I was actually trying to place when we first met, but this is in, in the world of, of NPR and public radio is that it is a, just, it's a very intertwined in, in, in many lovely ways um, uh, community of people who have sort of known each other for decades and decades. But, but what Lisa described and certainly Ellen as an editor you experienced was the transformation of the way both the pace of news, which just became a wholly different animal and the way people were consuming news, which was overwhelming. And so first we had to sort of keep up and catch up with that. And for an organization like NPR or for BUR and certainly for the Boston Globe, sort of figuring out how you distinguish yourself in an incredibly, um, you know, um, cacophonous environment. What do you do that makes you singular? How do you 
how do you make sure that you are so important in people's lives that they want to come back again and again and again? And I think the history of public radio is actually an important one because public radio at, at its start and NPR as its start zigged when everybody else was zagging. It was the first, the first organization to put women's voices on the air and to talk in a truly sort of real person's voice. I mean, you know, just, just listening to Susan again and the way, I mean, if you listen, if you listen to the best NPR or public BUR reporters, they are not just, they're not just vocally resonant, but the writing is beautiful and powerful and evocative in a way that is spare um, and, and special and it seeps into people's cores at the same time as you have to be there and give people the information they need like where can I go get my vaccine and when am I eligible? Well, it's, a, it's a magical as, as you say, a blend of storytelling and facts. The, uh, the importance of doing fact-based journalism seems um, essential to sustaining our democracy. And um, certainly WBUR, The Globe, there are many um, uh, news organizations that strive for that. Uh, a question has come in to the chat. Um, Lisa, for you, um, when researching the book, uh, how hard was it to get people to reveal things, uh, stories about sexism, marginalization, discriminatory practices occurring at the time? Oh, wow, not hard at all. In fact, I was overwhelmed that I hadn't read the things that I read to write this book before. For instance, there was a New York Times reporter who 20 years ago wrote a book about uh, all the discriminatory hiring practices at the New York Times uh, and, and how men kept dossiers on both women employees and prospective job candidates about their figures. Um, it was a book called The Girls in the Balcony. Um, and it was all, all about that, but also about how women couldn't enter the National Press Club uh, and finally fought their way to for the right to come hear newsmakers speak by having to go up into the balcony. They couldn't sit down on the regular on the floor with everybody else. But there, the, if anybody's seen the good girl, the when the good girls revolt by Lynn Povich about a similar suit at at Newsweek, um, the representative Martha Griffiths from uh, Michigan was incredibly vocal in the '60s as one of the few women serving in Congress, uh, and actually championed the idea of including women in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And she was super vocal. I think one of the, um, I have that in one of my footnotes in the book, if you want to look her up and hear her speaking, she was passionate and she was ferocious about women's, women's equality. So uh, yeah, there were a lot of people who were talking about it back then. And so finding evidence of it today, um, you know, and this is aside from the stuff that I had always known about, which was the classic 70s women's marches and early issues of Ms. Mag Magazine, which were really redolent of all of that too, but uh, you really get a, a serious look at uh, where women, the status of women, um, looking at many books written, other women who came before Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, like Nancy Dickerson or Pauline Frederick, uh, all had terrible, terrible experiences 
and were remarkably open about them either at the time or not long afterwards. So yeah, it's, it's interesting what's out there. And I hope that this book serves as a way to lasso up some of those materials for people, particularly young people who may be surprised to learn that that's how it used to be. And I have a, a final question, Margaret, it's for you, but Lisa, I'm, feel free to weigh in. Um, Margaret, you have made some very strong statement about confronting elements of systemic racism that persist in our country and our institutions, after, particularly after the murder of George Floyd. How is this played out at BUR? How is this playing out in, in general? Uh, for an um, welcoming, creating a welcoming environment, uh, a bel so BIPOC journalists in particular feel they belong. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, of course, the summer was such a, a, a powerful and important moment in all of our lives, and I think there was this there was this recognition in the country. And then, of course, in the city and in our institutions, that there was something different in kind about this moment. And I think people's attention um, was seized in a way that it had been in the past, but it hadn't lasted. And it has lasted. And I made a commitment and have made a commitment um, to making diversity, equity, inclusion a paramount pillar of our focus. Um, and it's really made a difference. I mean, I feel. Um, Look, the, I think one of the things one must recognize is A, the work is never done, but there are actually things that you must put in place to get the work done. And so the, the very first thing I did was talk to people who were deeply embedded this work and try to understand what were the things that I could do to make sure that the UR didn't just um, survive this moment, but actually became a shining example of how to get it right. And so, I mean, we did everything from uh, hours and hours of workshops with our staff, um, just, and for some people who had sort of been thinking about this and dealing this and confronting this in their own lives for, for their whole lives, it was recognition that BUR was beginning to pay attention. And for other people, it was a real, there was, there was real learning going on. And I, um, I committed to hiring a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we are, that search is underway. Um, but importantly, I also, when I, in, in last summer, it was actually short, shortly after George Floyd was murdered, I, I, I reorganized the newsroom. And one of the things I did was I built new editorial leadership jobs in the newsroom. And I committed to, at that time, to uh, making sure that um, at least half of the people that we interviewed for the jobs that we were hiring for were either people of color or from underrepresented groups. And, and, and it was very effective. And so we have done some remarkable hiring. Um, we, have, um, we have created, well, I, I should actually say the staff has created, which was a really impressive thing. The staff has created an equity advisory council. I was getting lots of input from lots of members of the staff about sort of things that I should be doing to combat systemic racism uh, at WBUR. And when I say that, I say, look, we were not as an organization, as an institution exempt from some of the challenges that 
every media organization faced. And I don't think it had been a central focus of the organization. And so at my request, um, the staff of WBUR organized an equity advisory council and a core group of that equity advisory council is my, is my touchstone. And there's a, a group of advisors to me on all issues of, of um, race and equity and inclusion. And, and, and some of the work that has to come is not just about making sure you're hiring well and making sure that your pools of candidates are extraordinary and from across the country. And I'm a believer that the talent is there. Um, the talent is out there um, to find. You just have to take the time to do it right. Um, but also what it means to actually make an organization feel like an inclusive place where if I walk in the door, I see people who look like me, I feel included, I feel like I belong, I feel welcome, and I feel like I actually have a path to staying at WBUR and to growing at WBUR. So it's about onboarding and, and training and development and retention and building an inclusive culture and um, and making sure that people see a place for themselves at the table, and it's it's um, it's 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 I think it's a lifetime work and has to go on forever. The same way it was when suddenly it was recognized, you know, post 1971 when Linda, Linda, Nina, Koki, and and um, and Susan made their way into public radio. That yes, of, of course, women can be um, on you know journalists and and leaders in 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 media. So it's, it's, we are a work in progress. I feel um, we've accomplished a lot um, and we're still learning and growing and evolving and, and, and thinking hard about it. 